Welcome to the Brave Feminine Leadership Podcast, where we share stories from amazing leaders just like you and me. We break down myths of leadership, imposter syndrome, and we ask what brave feminine leadership means and does it need to change. All of these interviews were originally recorded in video format. Follow us on Instagram or Facebook at Brave Feminine Leadership for news on when new video series will be dropping. It's wonderful to meet you. Drop me a note if the content resonates. Melissa at bravefeminineleadership.com. Let's get brave. Welcome to our interview series on Brave Feminine Leadership. Uh, today, I'm very excited to introduce you to Guillaume Svigas. Guillaume is the global chairman of Oricon. Uh, it's a billion dollar company with five and a half thousand people. He was CEO of Oricon from 2015 to 2019. Um, prior to that, Guillaume was at Deloitte for 36 years, um, emigrating from South Africa in 97, I think, and then CEO of Australia from 2003 to 2015. Another billion dollar organisation with six and a half thousand people by the time Guillaume left. I've invited Guillaume onto our series because he is very passionate about diversity and I'm uh, really looking forward to our conversation. I'm going to call out a couple of awards that you won along the way, Guillaume, if that's okay. So in 2005, um, he was awarded the best CEO for advancement of women in business. And in 2008, Deloitte's uh, was called out as the best firm for advancement of women in business. Uh, there's some serious uh, accolades in there and obviously someone who's been very committed and serious about diversity. Welcome. Thank you, Melissa, and thanks for the invitation. Absolute pleasure. Guillaume, um, it's possible people in our audience won't have come across you before, so I might throw to you in the first instance to just talk me through a little bit about, you know, your background and who you are and, um, and why you've done what you've done, if that's okay. Sure. Um, so a very short um, window into my rather <coughs> boring life is I um, grew up in an Afrikaans family. So uh, English is a second language and you'll quickly notice that. Um, so I, I'm an auditor by profession. I joined Deloitte straight out of university, but um, as a 24 year old, spent two years in Chicago with him and started seeing there's a bigger world out there. Okay. Um, I ran our Pretoria office. I came over to Australia late 97, as you said, uh, spent two years running the Brisbane office, um, still working as an auditor, got moved down to Sydney by the firm early 2003, when I was voted in as the Deloitte CEO, was a very dark time in Deloitte's history. Um, the very first interview that was published by, uh, with me in the then leading magazine over here, the headline was the sick puppy of the profession has a new master. Oh, congratulations. It was an awful um, article. And a year later, it was even worse um, when, they, when they accused us of losing the right to be a big four firm. So mm -hmm. it was a really dark period and it, it is an important part of the story. In 2012, uh, eight years after that magazine had written us off, the Fin Review had a competition of, um, they have an annual um, competition where the top 100 company CFOs hand out some awards. And that year Deloitte was given the award as the accounting firm of the year and the auditing firm of the year. 
the right. only time that award was ever won by two firms. Fantastic. But, that must have been very sweet to see that article. You have no idea. <laughs> um, nobody would ever understand how big a moment that was for me. Mm. Um, but more importantly, and that's at the heart of our, the whole diversity story, was the recognition we got all along for innovation. And Deloitte was listed on all the uh, most innovative company lists at, published at, over that period. I then um, retired after 12 years as the CEO, which is um, longer than a bit, a professional firm CEOs tend to go. And then was invited to run Oricon globally um, wonderful experience, except didn't know anything about engineering. But in 2006, two years into the process, um, the Fin Review rated Oricon the fifth most innovative firm in the country, and Lloyd number six, which was important to me. Mm. Um, and that same year, the Diversity Council rated Oricon as the most inclusive organization in Australia. We, and then the wonderful news was last year, 2020, the Fin Review rated Oricon as the most innovative company in Australia, as well as the most innovative professional service firm in Australia, mm. and Deloitte came second. Congratulations. And in, in the series, I'm also speaking to Louise, uh, Louise Adams, so um, from Oricon. Yeah. There's no accident that both of those firms ended up um, coming first and second in terms of innovation. So what's, tell me about that. Well, when we, when we realized we had to change Deloitte, we also realized that we had to compete in, in ways that other firms have not competed because you can't be that much smaller than the rest and compete conventionally if you have been, if you've proven over a decade that you kept on losing doing it. Mm. So the first, the first important thing for us was where will we find talent? And in 2003, believe it or not, um, I guess you will believe it and your um, listeners will, there was no focus on advancing women in business. Deloitte had 240 partners and we had four female partners. Wow. And we weren't doing anything any worse than any of the other firms. So mm -hmm. as a business strategy, we decided that we will create a firm that will get our unfair share of female talent. And it was I a like the, I like the term, the unfair yeah, share. It, 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 was, it was so important because we realized that all the firms were being dumb. There was a lot of talent that um, wasn't identified and whoever moved first would get the unfair share of talent. Mm. Now, we started doing really well with that. As I, as you mentioned, we that award. And I was fortunate to get the award because it, it, you always sound modest when you do this. But that was truly a team award, with a partner, Margaret Dreyer, having done extraordinary work. But the 2008 award, that was the one that that really made us proud because by that stage, we had more female partners than anybody else, and to this day, no big four firm has got more female partners than Deloitte has. Brilliant. And it was behind our strategy to be innovative and to let the clients experience something else. And we wanted diversity of thought. So it was very, it was a very clear business strategy. It was just, we had to compete. We had to pr produce something that other people hadn't seen. And if we didn't get diversity of thought in, we would never achieve that. Gim, I'd love to come back to, um, to how you did that. 
Um, but I just wanted to ask maybe for your thought just briefly as well on um, something that's very interesting to me is in the last couple of years, the movement around numbers of females in leadership roles has really stalled despite a lot of concerted effort and activity. Do you have any thoughts around why that might be? It's, you know, um, when I agreed to do this interview, I was filled with fear. Because <laughs> every time I talk on this topic, um, I get into trouble because there's so many different views and, and I have a view. So if, if you, if I could go back to the Deloitte period and in my 12 years there, we had a, a sort of a lost 18 months where we really didn't make progress. And I'll, I'll explain that and then I will answer your question. And it was at a time when we started putting out goals for um, how many females we wanted in every team. And we were very, we, we were a firm of high accountability, so people achieved those numbers. And in, in a firm like Deloitte, it's a very much an up or out organization. And the vital period every year is when you decide who's going to be the partners. And when I got the list from all my leaders to see the partners, I couldn't believe it after four years of really active working and doing well, we had zero females on the partner list. Wow. Zero. And I just stopped and I said, this is impossible. We cannot ever think of announcing it. And you know, when I went back to say what caused this, it was because we had, a, we had targets or you know, the word that I um, really believe is part of the problem of quotas. Mm -hmm. So all I had to do is it was a numbers game. Nobody asked me about the quality and I filled full positions with people that were not promotable and nobody checked it on quality. And I just, I went through an awful few weeks and we, we found some, some uh, people that we could promote that was overlooked. But I suddenly said, you know what? It's not so, so much about the numbers. It's about the quality of the people that come through and today, if you look at the female leaders in the Deloitte team, there's a lot of them. But it is because many years back, we made sure that we had an emphasis on making sure that not only do we expect you to identify very talented females, because we've always done that with males. Yes. But, but you're going you're to have to coach them and retain them exactly the same way as you used to do with males, because people were quite happy to... Um, get the best males in to ask the weaker males to go, but they didn't want to ask the weaker females to go because they, they, they was there. So every time I see quotas and every time I see numerical targets, I say to myself, you know what? I think that's the problem. And I really do believe it's because there's no emphasis on quality that organizations are struggling to get, to get the top um, people there because good females flee if they realize they can't be promoted because the ones ahead of them aren't going anywhere. They're not good enough. Yes. Males do exactly the same thing in the organization. Yes. Okay. Very um, interesting. Okay. So you, you more or less as CEO, you kind of mandated that there had to be females on the lists coming through to you on the partner lists. Absolutely. But they had to be quality. Yes. So, so we made it really clear that uh, because we were in a firm, a firm in trouble and we had the absolute burning platform at Deloitte, 
one could be far stronger and more, and you had to be a more courageous leader because you had to get people to um, execute on strategy. And our strategy was that we wanted our unfair share of female talent, not unfair share of females. There's, yes. there, there's an extra word in that sentence. And as a leader, if you couldn't prove to me that you were capable of attracting, retaining, and developing um, female talent, you lost your leadership role. Mm. Because this was not a luxury or a bonus point scoring. This was core strategy, and you had to do that. And people very quickly realized that we were very serious about it. And we, we weren't impatient at, at the level of stupidity. We made the business case, and yes, there was a lot of arguing about it. But it was such a compelling business case that people could see it. And the more we saw really good um, females come through, a lot of the teams have never worked with talented females. And they started seeing them, and they started realizing, well, at Deloitte, we can actually recruit that type of talent because everybody else was behind, was behind it, and they, they hadn't um, gotten onto it yet. Did you see, or do you see, one of the themes that's coming out of the conversations I'm having is that there's sort of two parts to this. There's a structural part, and, you know, you can tackle some of the structural things. Um, but there's another part, which is a lot to do with mindset. And, you know, when I think about diversity generally, and I think about females moving into um, more senior leadership roles, a lot of what I hear in the mindset place is that um, females can tend to self-reject before before putting themselves forward for a situation. Or some of the people I've spoken to in this series um, who are in very senior roles have talked about times when they thought to themselves, I'm doing a good job. If they wanted me to do that role, they would come and ask me. Did you see any of that? You know, have any thoughts about any of that? Well, it, it, it was hard for me to comment on that, seeing that I'm a male. Um, but what I've always believed is you can't expect leaders just to develop and on their own. If, as the CEO, your responsibility is to make sure there's a program that identifies high potential people and then put good leadership programs around them. Hmm. What we found is that, and because we started at reasonably young stages, um, in our case, um, with, the, with the younger partners, and we were very firm on the making sure that we had we worked with talent and we didn't spread, spread ourselves thin. A lot of those female leaders were going through the leadership training with males. And I think, and I hope that's true, realized that they were as good, if not better. Mm. And therefore, you help them acquire the confidence. I'm sure if you're in an organization where there's not an emphasis on mentoring, I know nowadays the word, there's a, the word sponsoring that is, that is also important, but formal training, um, then you will find a lot of people um, feeling that way. But I'm sure there's going to be a, quite a few males that feel the same way too. That's right. That's right. Um, it, it's very true, Gam, that, um, you know, it's not necessarily limited to one or the other. But, you know, research um, uh, coming out of a professor in the US who wrote a book called Women Don't Ask, Mm -hmm. And in that, it talks about, um, you know, males are 40% more likely to ask for a salary increase, as an example. And when women do ask, they ask for 30% less. You know, I'm, I'm intrigued as to um, 
you know, I hear what you're talking about is a leadership obligation to provide an environment that nurtures high potential and those sorts of things. Are there, are there, is there more to it than that? Like, how do we overcome some of those potential barriers? Uh, you know, that, that's, that's way above my pay grade to answer about how, how to get, um, eliminate that. Yeah. I, re I do think we've re we re managed to reduce it through the emphasis on uh, quality mentoring, quality leadership development. So we had two different pro programs. The, the one was just identifying, the, um, recognizing and making heroes of the partners that were recognized as very good mentors. And then we had a very professional leadership development um, pr uh, person with a PhD in psychology, um, having worked in leadership a lot, working intensely with the best people to, to, de to develop those skills. And we, we recognized we were too big to think we could change everybody, but we could change the role models and we could change the leaders. And hopefully some of that um, cascaded down. It, it was never perfect, no. but it, it worked for us. Yeah. And it, it gave us results way beyond what our expectations were and what it really was what our you know, dreams were that we didn't think we could ever reach. Can I bring you back to um, the link between diversity and innovation? When you're thinking about the organisations that you've led, how did you really, you know, how did you really capture that sort of diversity and, and turn it into um, the innovation that these companies are being awarded for today? Well, what we did is, again, I'm a real big believer in training. You can't walk out, snap your fingers and tell people to become innovative. So we invested heavily in flying people in from the US to work with teams. And teams very quickly realized if you put a bunch of 40 year plus old um, uh, male accountants in a room, your answer looks like it was developed by a bunch of over 40 year old accountants in a room. While the teams that had more diversity of thinking in it came up with more exciting answers. And there's nothing like that sort of experience where, it, because these big professional firms are very, very competitive internally and very competitive externally. People want to win that goes in there because they're pyramids. Mm -hmm. And to suddenly realize that the other teams are coming up with better answers proves to you that you've got to have diversity of thinking. Now, you know, one of the interesting things for me is quite a few times I've seen men and myself being beaten up because you suddenly have somebody that says, but women and men all think the same, which I really do believe they think differently. And I get excited about the fact that they think differently because that gives me diversity, that gives me the innovative answer. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, okay, so um, I'm going to change gears a little bit and... Um, I find this really, it might embarrass you when I bring some of these up, but um, I think it goes to, you've obviously had an enormous influence across the organisations that you've been part of. And I want to dig in a little bit to your sort of leadership philosophy, if you like. Um, and I'm just going to call out a couple of things here. And these were, I trawled through LinkedIn and I just happened to notice a couple of posts that either you'd commented on other people's and things like that. But I thought they were really interesting. So one was um, Cindy Hook, um, Deloitte Asia Pacific CEO, calling out that she would be forever grateful for the help you had in shaping her career and her leadership. 
Um, another one, I didn't capture the name, but it was someone talking about you as Deloitte's best CEO ever. I saw him speak once and I wanted to work for him. I can't date that, so I'm not sure if they're referring to, uh, you know, who, who they might be comparing you to. But something that I thought was lovely was um, in reference to your granddaughter um, saying, you know, I hope she will grow up to know the amazing influence her granddad had on equality in the workplace. Um, you know, I thought that was very special. And then another one that I just, um, I really loved this. It was um, a new employee, a new team member at Oricon, Jessica Coldray, I think is her name. And two months ago, she posted on LinkedIn that she had just started her dream role at Oricon. And I noticed that you had commented on that and you had welcomed her to the organisation. Now, as global chairman um, of an organisation with, uh, you know, over five and a half thousand people, I think, as we referred to earlier, that's pretty special to get that sort of welcome. Um, talk to me about your leadership philosophy and um, it's obviously had a big impact on a lot of people. I'm calling out some females that have, have um, acknowledged you, but what is your leadership philosophy? I really do believe you're there to, to bring the best other people. And I would hope that people that describe, that talk about me says that I'm 80% cheerleader, but 20% a very strong hand over the organization. So um, I was fortunate to have had a very close mate when I was still in South Africa. We played rugby together and was an extraordinary psychologist. And he was the person that spoke to me about focusing your strengths and ignore your weaknesses. But also when you look at other people, um, don't, look, don't um, look for all their um, weaknesses and strengths, just look for strengths. Mm. And interesting enough, we, we developed a um, structured interview program. And you had to go through this to, with, with, with candidates and um, rate them. And so we did the 10 categories and you put, uh, wrote down marks and you added it up because we were accountants. And Darby came in and said, no, no, only pick the top two or three um, boxes and throw all the other ones out. And just look for, the, for, for people that score high on two or three of the questions because they will make a difference. Um, don't go for the average people, go for the for people that are very best, because with that comes weaknesses. Mm. So from, from that time, and I was 30, you know, 30 years old um, and a young Deloitte partner, I tend to look at people and say, what can I do to, to make people believe in them, these people, believe in themselves? What can I do to get them to do their best? And even at Deloitte, every year with the new graduates, I, I went and spoke to them. And I spoke to them about, um, forget about what your parents said, forget about what your teacher said about, get better at this, fix this. Pick two things that you're good at and become really brilliant. And um, you know, I'm, I'm a six foot four rugby player. And I part of that presentation, I used to show that if I wanted to do a pirouette, um, I would never have been the ballet dancer, no hard, uh, matter how, how hard I tried. Yes. And I would just have been the depressed ballet dancer. So. <laughs> by ignoring the things I couldn't do and going to do the things I do well. And, and I do love people. And I, um, I, I, I've always liked having as much contact as possible. And if I spot something like that on LinkedIn, you know, it really doesn't take much effort to say welcome. No, um, but the, the impact of that, um, you know, to that individual, um, I imagine would be, you know, quite profound as well. I also, Guillaume, wanted to pick up 
um, you know, I've heard people encouraging and it's males or females, and I'm obviously focused on females in this series, but encouraging people to take more risks. And I'd just love to hear, it, it seems to me you may have taken a pretty big risk when after 36 years as, I think I've heard you describe yourself as a boring accountant, um, as a boring accountant, you decided to go and head up an engineering firm. So did that feel like a risk to you at the time? Enormous. Um, but I've always been a big fan of risk taking and, and we encourage people to take risks. Um, not professional risks, but business risks. And one of the key questions I ask executives before I, I promote them or appoint them in senior roles is tell me about the failure you had. Mm. And um, tell me how about how you dealt with it. And if somebody tells me they have never had a failure, you can't do a turnaround with leaders that have never failed because that means they're too cautious. Yes. And secondly, I don't want to, them to experience failure for the first time on my watch. I want to know what they, what they, how they deal with it. Mm. So we've really encouraged people to lose their fear of failure, fail quickly, fail cheaply, learn from it. Don't, don't do the same dumb thing twice. Yeah. But I reckon that leaders have lost their courage um, mm. and they're trying to lead as per the norm rather than as, as to something special. One of the um, slides that I have used most in all my time and all my public speaking is leadership, I, I think, is simply described as taking people to where they ought to go, not where they want to go. Mm. And that is a risk because you are, you are telling people to move away from where, they, um, where, they, where they're comfortable, to go elsewhere. And if you're a good communicator, you can make them at least look forward to the journey. Um, or let them let them understand what the journey is going to entail. Mm. But that is so important. What do courageous leaders look like? So when you say people are trying to lead from a norm and stuff, what do courageous leaders look like? What those, courageous leaders are people that have a vision and that can walk into a room where you know, we've all been in these management workshops where people put voting slips up and then we vote. And, you know, when you manage to the norm is when you look at that and say, this is a democracy, let's do what you all want to do. Mm. And courageous leadership is when you can walk in and you, you can sell a vision to the organization and you can explain why it is that that is a better place to go to. And mm. you're going to have to know that you're going to have to get rid of some of the executives that decide that they do not want to go there. You um, just have to be bold enough to say, you know what, um, this organization needs to go there. This is why it has to be, this is what it's gonna look like. Now I need people to tell me how they're going to do it. It's not the leader's job to, uh, to the senior leader's job to say how you're gonna do it. But also courageous leaders have very strong people around. Um, you know, I don't know what the gender friendly term of yes men is, so, uh, but, um, <laughs> But we all know what I mean, and it's easy to surround yourself with people that agree with you the whole time, because it makes you comfortable. Mm -hmm. It's when you, when you can surround yourself with people that make you really uncomfortable. You know you're going you're gonna to have to be very sharp in your ideas and the way that you um, communicate it. So back to your risk heading to, you know, this uh, large engineering firm, had, had you built anything or designed anything before you... You have got to be kidding me. 
No. You're talking to somebody in the household where my wife owns a tool bag. I don't. Oh, fantastic. So you've never met anybody that was so out of their depth. And I can honestly say I walked in there on the Monday morning. I went to, we had internal meetings. I went to see some clients. And on the Friday afternoon, there was the, we were reviewing the largest tender the firm has ever submitted that needed my approval. And in a three-hour meeting with lots of PowerPoint slides, there was not a bullet I understood. I love it. And I got home and I um, poured myself one of the biggest whiskeys you've ever seen. And I sat on my balcony looking out over the Sydney Harbour and saying to myself, what have you done? And um, I, I surrounded myself with really ideas of so the engineering world. And I focused on the things I understood. And it ended up being four of the most wonderfully rewarding years of my life. It was just, I, I discovered a profession. I discovered a different type of professional that thinks in a different way. And I had the privilege of walking sites and seeing the things we leave behind. And for an auditor that really has not created much, and for a guy that didn't understand anything like this, walking through the North Connects Tunnel and all these other exciting places is really something special. I think that's incredible. And, you know, I love, um, I love that you're comfortable sharing how far out of your comfort zone you were. You yeah. know, a lot of, I think one of the, the most powerful things um, that someone ever shared with me, and it was, uh, it was a mentor of mine, and he'd sort of said to me, you'll, you'll be a CEO one day, and it had never been on my radar before. And he then said to me, um, he said, you just need to know that whenever anyone steps into a new role, they've got no idea what they're doing. They're all just there waiting until someone finds out they don't know. And the, the power of him sharing that, I thought, what, you don't know what you're doing? What do you mean you don't know what you're doing? Um, was incredible. But I absolutely believe life starts on the other side of your comfort zone. Mm. And the more time I can spend on the other side of my comfort zone, the richer my life is. You know, pick, you know, picking up at 42, leaving South Africa, bringing three boys and a wife to, the, to this country where you have to leave your money behind and, and start over. Um, that's very far out of your comfort zone. After two yeah, yeah. years moving from Brisbane to Sydney and start over again, yeah. And every one of these experiences were just so rewarding. Um, the, the privilege of, in a foreign country and in a foreign language, to, to lead these firms um, was, was something really special to me. Can I ask your opinion on a question that I get asked? Um, and this is in the work I do as a mentor. Uh, occasionally, I'll receive a brief. And more often than not, if it's a female in question, the, the wording on there will be, help them find their voice. What, what do you think that means? If you could just help me. <laughs> well, um, I actually saw, saw, I saw that a few months ago um, and I, I wasn't sure what that meant. Um, I, I do believe that one of the most important things every executive that, that's ambitious must learn is, their, is communication skills mm. and, and how to Tell a compelling story. And we, at Deloitte, we invested heavily. We, we actually have partners whose sole job is to go and teach clients how to tell stories. Because um, when you're doing a transformation, if you can't make that why exciting and you can't make the vision exciting, it's not there. Yeah. So I normally just look at it and say, this is somebody that pro probably presents in very technical 
in a technical manner or very factual manner. And finding the voice most likely means getting them to make that presentation a bit more interesting and putting a bit more context about it. Mm. I do see it with males quite a bit too, by the way. Um, it's definitely not a, a, a uniquely female um, attribute, but I, I have heard it more often with uh, females than with males. I, I saw, I think it was another interview with at one stage with you where you said that you would encourage people um, in your teams to really tell people what they think and what they want. Yeah, the, uh, you know, nobody ever exceeds their own expectations of themselves. Mm. And no organization exceeds the expectations of themselves. But I also think people shouldn't put the expectations too far ahead of them. I love sports psychology um, and I love sports psychologists. And I um, had the privilege of playing golf a few times with one of the greatest sports psychologists in the UK. He became a surfer for the fact that he helped so many um, British sportsmen become the best in the world. Mm -hmm. And he was telling me that when he works with sports people, uh, he asked them to score themselves, and they'll say eight out of 10, seven out of 10 or whatever. And um, he says, oh, that's interesting. And, and they said, what do you think you score us? And he said, I score you a 10. And they'll say, out of what? He says, I don't know. Huh. I have no idea how good you can be. Yes. But you're a 10. And we're going to work on becoming an 11. And when you're an 11, we're going to work on becoming a 12. And as long as you do one thing for me, and that is on Friday afternoon, you tell me that you are better than you were on Monday morning, we're on track. Mm. And it was such a simple uh, philosophy. And his T-shirt he was wearing was just unlimited. And he said, I believe people have unlimited potential if they're willing to invest in themselves. And mm -hmm. from the moment I heard that, I've repeated that over and over, and I really try and live up to that myself. Mm. I think that's amazing. Um, Guillaume, what's your why in the diversity space? And, and I'll, I'll go particularly to uh, the gender side where you have been um, such a passionate advocate and supporter. You know, you've just shared you've got three sons um, and, you know, I know, I think you come from, a, you've got a couple of brothers, I think, in the, yeah. Um, I come from a very blokey background. Boys, right. What? Boys school, rugby player, military training, um, and 5% of the, of the class were female. So um, you, could, you couldn't be more blokey than my background. So what, what's your why and, um, and why do you think when I, I went out to my network uh, asking, you know, who do you think would be um, a good guy to include in our series? Um, why do you think your name came up? But firstly, what's your why? Well, um, I'm gonna give you two, two answers to it. When people look at me, um, visually, I look like part of the crowd. Um, but actually, it, I, I'm a different culture. I'm from a different continent. I, I'm not. I'm not comfortable speaking English yet. Um, it's it, it's always uh, always an issue. Yeah. So I was a minority wherever I worked, mm. and I realized what, what what happens when people don't understand what's happening. But for me, the why was simply I like winning. I, I like creating winning organizations. And in every one of the instances I had, 
getting the getting diversity of thought into the organization was going to make us a winning organization so it was it for me it was just here is something you can do that other people pay lip service to that is going to give you a competitive advantage mm -hmm. and that's why those awards that we keep on winning is so important to me because it just proves that um but it's not diversity just for the sake of diversity the mm -hmm. unfair share of female talent is where it becomes important because you can kill your diversity program if it becomes a numbers game and you have a bunch of diverse but untalented people or you know just capable people capable people do good work they safe set of hands but they don't turn organizations around they don't excite clients and you you've got to lift the bar so high that talented people want to work for you when did you fail along the way so you know you've done some pretty big turnarounds so what sort of failure points did you have oh I, I, there were so many along the way um you can't believe it but they were there were things we tried that didn't work and i shrugged my shoulders i said right from the beginning to to our board that if you expect me to get more than 70 percent of my decisions right you've got the wrong person Mm. We need some boldness and we need to be um, willing to fail. And as long as the, the failure is not overly expensive, um, we, we're just going to live with it. Don't spend a lot of time telling me about it because I'm going to be off onto the next thing and see what works because you can over research and overthink things, but you can just go and test it. And mm -hmm. the design thinking um, philosophy teaches you just to take things into the field and have an open mind and just say, well, it, that doesn't work. Let, let's, go, let's go and give this a try. Hmm. Um, I'll combine that other question I asked you with, um, with another question, which is, you know, people will, will look at you and I'm sure will have looked at you throughout your career and thought to themselves, you know, I could, I could never do that. You know, I could never be game. I could never do what he does. How would you respond to that, to people thinking that? Yeah, I've been asked that question a few times. And it's, again, it's, it's a tricky answer because it, it does become a self-serving answer. It is possibly true that not everybody can do it. Mm -hmm. because it's not everybody's cup of tea. And I really think it becomes unfair when people get up and say to an audience, any one of you can do it because yes. it's not true some people don't have the personality for it and some people don't have the willingness and just to make them feel like losers isn't fair yeah but i will then also argue that the people that seriously believe they can do it that number should be double what it is mm. because there's a lot of people that don't realize how good they are and i'm absolutely the beneficiary of a outgoing ceo in south africa at I was a young partner. I was 31, perhaps, perhaps 32 years old. Mm. And in his presentation, he turned to me and said, there was a whole bunch of people in the room. And Guillaume, by the way, one day you could, you could run the firm. And all, that's all Tim Curtis said. Um, I, I don't think I ever would have had that opportunity in South Africa because of the cultural background that I come from. Right. But I, I came to a country that has got an open mind and I got, got it and many, many years later, I managed to, um, to get it and I wrote Tim a, a, a letter and it was still a, a proper letter to say, Tim, um, thank you very much, you believed in me. And he actually got the letter two months before his death. Aww. 
I'm so glad he got the letter. Same here. Yeah. It was just fantastic that, that I managed to get there. But that's the sort of confidence people can give you by saying you, you can do it. But I also think it's harsh to say everybody can do it. But a lot of people got potential to, to, to do that. But you have to work on that potential. You have to really learn. How, leadership's an acquired skill. Yes, there's some natural um, instincts. But you, you, um, you, you can learn to become a better leader. You can. You can build that muscle, can't you? Yeah. Guillaume, um, I, I absolutely could keep talking for hours, but that's not what I asked you to do. So, um, but I would like to finish by, um, you know, just asking you a question that I'm asking of everybody, which is from your perspective, what does brave feminine leadership look like today? And do you think it needs to change? You know, I've seen the title of it and I struggle to understand exactly, I think I understand what it is, but I don't know what the difference is going to be if you exchange female for male. Okay. Because I think brave leadership, it goes back to what I said earlier. It is about having a vision that is not what, is not what people expect, that is considered, and then taking the organization there and shaping leadership teams to, to teams that are capable of, of getting there. It, it means being bold, setting yourself up for failure, making sure that people realize that there's a bit of vulnerability there, dealing with, with the people that are gonna hold you back and attracting the people that are gonna help you um, get there. And that, that takes bravery. That, you don't do that without waking up many, many nights tossing and turning and, and worrying about it. It's, mm very easy to go and do what people want you to do. Um, that's not brave leadership. That's, that's barely leadership. That's probably mm -hmm. management. Thank you so much for your generosity in joining in the conversation. Um, it's been absolutely wonderful. So I just want to thank you, Guillaume, for, for joining our conversation. No, thank you for the invitation. Hello there. If you're enjoying the podcast and would love to accelerate your own growth and leadership, then head to bravefeminineleadership.com forward slash brave tips for your gift from me, where I've captured all of the amazing tips and themes that came out of these conversations. I hope they help you feel your brave rising.